Welcome back to episode, this is episode 7 now of the QW Podcast, and got a pretty excited guest today. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm uh, Josh Nobum, uh, currently the Minister of Thanks for coming out. Pretty excited. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Have you ever done anything like this before? Uh, well, like in terms of interview settings, yeah. uh, I've done a few. Uh, as I think about it now, I remember there was a period of time when I was a vice principal when we tried to launch our own podcast that I hadn't thought of in years. Oh. Uh, doing some work around that. Sorry for the brief interruption. So I had asked uh, if you've ever done an interview before. Yeah, yeah I've done a few. Yeah. And then uh, yeah, what I was recalling that I hadn't thought of prior to oh, yeah. was that, yeah, we tried to launch a podcast as vice principal. Just exploring another medium, a way to get professional development to teachers. Mm-hmm. And I was, oh gosh, 15 years ago. Oh, that's a good idea, yeah. though. Uh, and so it lasts a few episodes. That's a good audience, though, because the teachers, especially, are always trying to uh, continue education and keep learning. And that'd be a good audience to shoot for. Absolutely. Usually all lifetime learners. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast listeners, too. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. So what, if, what kind of jobs have you had in the past? Uh, prior to education or just education? Just, um, yeah, we'll go. We'll just start education. Yeah. Uh, the funny thing about that story is that uh, my I come from a family of educators. So my dad's a, a long-time math teacher and administrator. And I remember coming through high school and remembering that uh, him he was busy all the time and gone all the time. And I said, there's no way in hell I'm ever going to be a teacher. <laughs> I can I relate to that. How hard he worked, right? Uh, which is, you know, noble and fine. But uh, I remember that uh, thinking there's no way that that's going to be what I do. But all the way through high school, I'd spent years uh, and summers working with kids and doing kids camps and being TAs in the elementary schools and I mean, it was, it was meant to be. There, there wasn't anything else. So education has always been where I was headed. But, okay. So I was an elementary major, became a second grade teacher, and then I was a fifth grade teacher for a while. Up from there, so I became vice principal later, then eventually elementary principal, and then I jumped into this role where I'm doing principal and superintendent uh, in education all the way, all the way through. Did you think when you were a teacher that you wanted to be a principal at some point? No. Uh, you know, my story is always one of I end up stumbling into a role that I didn't know I was going to want yeah and uh, or that I was ready for there's probably a lot of those uh, at your current yeah every, <laughs> every step along the way it's kind of funny how that works so when I was a teacher I assumed I would be just a teacher for the rest of my life that was the was the end of the dream being a teacher and grad you know retiring as a teacher that would be it uh, and I remember I got about I don't know three four years in and I was doing work at the district office level on committees and in leadership roles. I was on a leadership team at school. I, mean, I was already kind of serving and finding ways to have influence as a teacher leader early on. And uh, one of the things that became really apparent to me all of a sudden was that I have a lot of influence over my class, but I don't have a ton of influence outside of my, but definitely not at the building level. Yeah. And I kept watching principals roll in that, were ineffective or we would do things that weren't very effective and I wanted to have influence at a greater level and I remember thinking you know if I can do some good work and have great success in my classroom would it be possible to influence a building level yeah and I remember that like impact of I could affect more people and implement better things which might have been arrogant at the time but I could do I could do better uh, it's not kind of if you're right. my way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose I had to prove uh, over time that I was right, but yeah, um, yeah the uh, that's kind of what led me to lean towards administration. I it was not the pathway I ever thought I would take, and leadership was definitely not on my radar. Uh, I really just solely was focused on being a classroom teacher and that was the dream yeah uh, so that's a frustrating realization yeah. to make though to realize that there's people above you that aren't doing as good a job as you could yeah and I mean arrogance is a good word because there's a little bit of that right there's a lot to learn for me like and what it takes to be in that position and, and 
really what uh, uh, what that purpose is for wanting to move into that role, and uh, and that was quite the journey. Yeah, in and of itself was learning what leadership really is, and learning that uh, you know how to how to be a good leader and what some of those things look like. But I mean, none of that was on my radar. I mean, it really was just simply. I think I could do it better right? <laughs> as you walk into there. Uh, and then you quickly realize it's not as easy. It's way more complex. Working with adults is 10 times harder than working with kids. Um, and there's a lot more to it than that. And yeah. so I think there's some arrogance there, some just frustration and want to, you just want to make a change. Uh, but that's what launched the journey. I mean, that's what launched me into administration was saying, I think I can do more than I can do just within the four walls of my classroom. Yeah. Do you remember any of the, the first adjustments you had to make to managing adults? I do. Yeah. Um, and I got to ease into that. So when I when I went to the vice principal role, part of the nice thing about that responsibility is you're still working directly with kids. There's a large chunk of what you're doing is discipline, supporting kids that are struggling, dealing with you know, various issues that kids have. I mean, there's still a very kid-centric part of the responsibility. But you're starting to lean into that space where you're managing people. Um, and, yeah, it's hard. I mean, you start to realize that, uh, you know, people don't just do what you tell them to do. No, they don't. At all, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's not – it's never as simple as just saying, hey, go do this thing, you know? Right. So I started to have to learn that you're there to serve them. And relationship piece – is really important. And so uh, it's, it is one thing to have some competence and know what you're doing and know you're doing the right things. But I had to learn the hard way, the relationship side of that, of working with people yeah, and how to iron and build cooperation. And when we're setting expectations to do that together and allow for some of that, it's not always the same. Uh, we find kids respond the same way, actually. But uh, it, it was a struggle for me. I think I came in very much just thinking, Oh, I'm going to know the answer and you're going to go do it. And, uh, yeah. and that is not how it works. What are some the, things that you learned that you could do to get people to buy in? Yeah, I think the, and this is an ever evolving journey for me, but one of the, um, one of the things that starts to look like is, um, there's a piece for leadership where you just you get a little bit better about just articulating the vision, right? Yeah. And better at communicating. Here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's the end in mind. Uh, so saying things like, um, you know, here's really what we want for kids. Here's the outcome we're trying to achieve and, and just communicating that pretty clearly. But then the other part of that I'm finding is um, people really just want to be able to contribute. They want to have some influence, some real influence over what those expectations are. And so when I say, hey, we've got to, you know, go accomplish this thing around math instruction or whatever, right? You can say, we really need this to be the outcome. I can invite you into that conversation and say, hey, you know, let's talk about what that instruction might look like. Here's the things we know from all of our learning together. Let's talk about what that looks like for you. Let's set some expectations about some of these things that need to be in place. And let's both agree that this is what you're going to shoot for and, and achieve. And do you feel good about that? And so that invitation to be a part of setting the expectations, I think, is a, is a really interesting piece of that learning for me. And that, I think, just that invitation to be a part of that makes the rest of the whole process go smoother because one, you and I together building that expectation, you've built it, right? It's your yeah. expectation you've built with me. It's not just me saying, hey, I need to see this strategy in place for your kids. We've both agreed we're going to do that strategy in order to achieve this outcome. And so when it's time to sit down and say, well, did you actually do it? you've been a part of saying you're going to do it. And, yeah. and so the chance that you're going to do it is much higher. That makes sense. We ran yeah. into that... Uh, last summer coaching baseball, I texted, so I was the assistant coach, I texted the head coach, I'm like, we're trying to, it's like the dugout would be like the equivalent of our classroom, right? We're trying to teach kids, and they're all like filing out and going to talk to their parents or going to get food, or the parents are coming to the dugout, and it's like, we can't have this. So he texted the whole team, and he's like, this is what we're trying to build, this is like what we need from you guys, can you help us accomplish, like helping the kids focus on the game? And that's something that I never would have thought to do, but definitely a learning moment. That's a great parallel. That just that that ask, right? Just that invitation, like yeah. Here's the, here's the what we're trying to achieve. He did that same communication, right? And then just the ask. 
Yeah. Can you help be a part of that solution for us? Yeah. Yeah. It goes a long ways. Yeah. It really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they want to be a part of it. They definitely they want it to be and like, they need yeah, to be. their accomplishment. Yeah. So, um, how long were you the assistant principal before you could take on the, the full role? Yeah. I, and everybody's journey is a little bit different, but, um, I had taught for five years and then transitioned into the vice principal role. And I ended up working with uh, an incredible principal. Uh, and I loved her to death. And she was, uh, she was phenomenal. I ended up staying in that role for five years. And uh, I think the first maybe like two or three, there was no way I felt ready to take on the principal role. When I watched what she did and the responsibilities that she had, the decisions she was making, what she knew, uh, frankly, it was scary, right? It was nice to not be the uh, ultimate person in charge, right? right? And to just support that work as a part of that team. Uh, so for me, I think it was right about that third year, fourth year, I started to go, okay, I'm feeling strong. I feel like I'm stretching my wings here a bit. I think I'm about ready to go make that leap. And uh, so it took me until about then. And so I made the transition after my fifth year. Okay. Uh, to be a principal. So for me, I don't know if that's long or short compared to other people, but I think it took me a while to have to learn what the real role looked like. And if I would have jumped sooner, I don't know if I would have been as successful. I had a lot of time to be a support watch and be mentored and learn. And I think that was a, a really, really good thing for me uh, to sit in there for a good chunk of time before I transitioned. Was that here in Boise? That was uh, in CUNA. Okay. So I started my career in the CUNA school district. So I was a teacher there and then the vice principal there. Okay. And so that's that's where a chunk of my career has been. Um, and then when I made that jump to being principal on my own, uh, I ended up taking an opportunity in Bruno Grandview. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. So I made a, that hour drive down in the middle of nowhere. Jeez. Uh, and so. That's where I moved into that principal role for the first time by myself. Okay. Was out there. Sorry, could you bring this just a hair closer? Oh, yeah, to you bet. Or you can, I think you can probably bring it to you if you don't want to like lean forward. So you're a principal at, uh, at CUNA, and then did you go straight to the village from there? So, yeah, so after CUNA, I went to Bruno Grandview for two years. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. So I was elementary principal there. And then, uh, um, yeah, then I made that transition to the village. And so okay. now I've been at the village for three years. Yeah. Is there a bunch of roles at the village that you ended up having to take that you didn't see coming? Oh, tons. Yeah. <laughs> um, I knew when I took the role that I was taking, uh, this is true for small schools and, and definitely our small charter schools. I knew that I was going to be in the principal role and the superintendent role at the same time. So I already knew that coming in, that I'd be working with a school board that I'd be some of those responsibilities. I didn't anticipate what it meant to have to be in charge of all the other programs that you have in a district. So things like your special education programs, things uh, all the federal programs that get uh, run through the school. So all of your title programs and the money that rolls through to support migrant students and homeless students and students that are multilingual learners. Uh, I didn't realize I'd be managing these programs at that level and interfacing with the state and having to be in charge of all of that. So I think I, I didn't realize how many hats were involved yeah. in that. So yeah, those are some examples of the, the responsibilities there that I think I maybe anticipated but not really understood that I would be in charge of all of those things. But it sets you up space. for the next job now. Yeah. I did, uh, in a lot of ways, um, and for lots of reasons, but, uh, yeah, so the, the new role that I'm jumping into is a uh, federal program director for the state department of ed. And so, yeah, this, this person is the one of several directors, but is really in charge of overseeing all of those federal dollars that roll into the state of Idaho and push down to all the districts and charters. Um, so overseeing all those federal programs and there's many, and I named some of those, but, uh, so yeah, that role would be in charge of overseeing that team that ensures that districts are meeting the compliance that's required with accepting 
federal grant money because a lot of strings attached yeah. to those uh, dollars and a lot of things that districts have to do in order to receive them and continue to receive them. And that team oversees all of that money as it flows through from the United States uh, Department of Education to our state and down to our district. So that's the role that I'm going to be fulfilling. How does the tier system work? So are you in charge of kind of overseeing the whole state or just a region of the state or? Yeah. So I got, I'm in charge of the whole state. So, uh, okay. yep. So every, everything that rolls through, that's about half a billion dollars comes through the state of Idaho in federal grants. That's all through my department. Where does that rank yeah. among other states? Do you know? Ooh, that's a good question. Idaho is fairly small comparatively. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know that off the top of my head. I'd have to look into that. But They also don't prioritize yeah. education too much. <laughs> Depends <laughs> on which side of us you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a wide variety of ways that states address education. And Idaho is an interesting state, but I think Idaho, interesting enough, has been prioritizing education more recently. I mean, um, we've had things like a recession and obviously a pandemic and you know, things that create bumps in the road. But yeah. I think our legislators, even with the national politics around education, there's a lot that's attacking public education. But I think uh, we've done some good things to invest in education recently. It's kind of exciting. That's a good term. Yeah. It hasn't been that way in it's Idaho. not been that way. Yeah. So is there um, people kind of with your job, but on a smaller scale that kind of oversees each district and then you just kind of oversee what they're doing? Yeah, so the, and every district is different, um, and that's almost all because of size. And so when you're talking about a small school like mine, um, I'm it, right? And then if I can bring, okay. bring up teacher leaders to take on some of those roles, like, like to help be federal programs director, right? They can start to be responsible for overseeing those programs, which is kind of what's happening in my school. Um, but that that varies, and it varies all depending on the skill sets of the people in the districts. So rural schools, you'll probably see, like me, it's somebody wearing 10 hats. Yeah. And one of those happens to be that federal programs hat. Um, but they can divvy it up however they want. And when you start getting into large districts, so districts like the ones in the Treasure Valley are good examples, You know, they can start to begin to hire people for individual programs within all of those so they can have like a oh, title okay. one person, right? They can have somebody that's doing uh, all their title two or somebody that's taking on just their EL programs, right? I mean, they can hire individual people because they're big enough. And so it, there is a lot of variety in how that plays out. Yeah. Uh, and the districts have local control. That's one of the interesting things. So there's not really a, you know, beyond federal and state law, and some of our administrative code that governs what districts can do. It's not like the State Department has control over districts. And so really we're serving districts to help them meet the law. Okay. So it's, so it's kind of a different way to think about that as, you know, we're, we're serving them to be able to do the best they can for their kids. But their local school boards get to make all those decisions. Okay. That's how the state is. So every district can make independent decisions about how they staff and who they're hiring and what that's going to look like and what they prioritize. So that adds to the variety. Yeah. How do schools qualify? Do they have to apply for these, the funds? So like Title I, do you have to apply for that or does does the school just qualify automatically? Yeah. So you do have to go through steps to qualify. So it's their grants, right? So you're, every year you fill out an actual application and and apply for the grants and receive them. Um, in the case of Title One, it's pretty predictable. And yeah, the, the way you qualify there, um, Title One and the money that for Title One is to support, in particular, students who are coming from low socioeconomic backgrounds, and to help provide money to do programs on top of what you already provide. So extra okay. to support kids. So one of the things districts have to prove is your number of students who are in those low socioeconomic stats, right? And they do that through a couple different ways to get those numbers. Um, so like kids that qualify for free and reduced lunch through child pro nutrition programs, that's one of the numbers they pull, right? That helps them to get that. So yeah, you have to have a population of kids who are in that low, uh, lower poverty range. And that number is a big number that determines part of that qualification. Okay. But then the school district has to apply every year, right? They have to 
actually submit all that information, submit the grant application in order to receive those funds and then report on them at the end of the year, just like a lot of other grants. So is it just one application for all the different grants, or is, do you have to keep filling them out for as many as you want to apply for? Yeah. Um, the nice thing about some of the ones that are are predictable, like all the title funds that, that come to schools, um, yeah, the uh, somebody somewhere decided it was nice to put all of that into one consolidated grant application. So, yeah, so that nicely the people that fill that out can just fill out one application for all of them, but That's they're still idea. completing all the, the individual grants within it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Where does all this money come from? Is it all taxpayer? Yep. And it's all federal. Okay. Um, so this is money not coming from state or local taxes. Okay. And so, yeah, when we're talking about federal programs, this is money coming from the federal level, pushed out to the states, and then flowing down to the districts. So, okay. Yep. Yeah. So it's not our Idaho state taxes, right, right. that are funding that. Or local Thank taxes, <laughs> right? Yeah. So this is federal money. Okay. And with that, it means there's a lot of, I mean, that's part of why there's a lot of strings attached, right? You're applying to get that money and then there's a lot of requirements as a piece of that. But yeah, it's not, it's not Idaho taxpayer dollars in that sense. It's your federal taxes. There. Then there wouldn't be much if it was the Idaho yeah, taxpayer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What is your role if schools are misusing the funds? Yeah, there's a compliance level there. I think the um, the hope is that our role is to help them not to misuse funds, right? right. To help them to understand um, what the boundaries, to make sure that they know what they have to do, to make sure they are using them in the ways that they agreed and said that they would. Uh, so I think that's part of that service-oriented piece of that, right? If we can help to give them good information, to remind them of deadlines to make sure they're doing the right things to support them in how they're planning to use that money when they get it. Help, hopefully it'll help them to prevent those things from happening, but they happen. Um, you know, people make mistakes and not always on purpose. Um, very rarely is somebody intentionally misusing, you know, money. Um, but that's probably the first role, right? Is ensuring that our, our focus is on how do we help support first. Um, but then there is a level where we have to come in and we have to help people make corrections. And luckily there's a lot of easy ways to do that. There's a lot of ways to just say, you got there, right? And you yeah. just need to rectify it. And then in many cases, that just means the district is paying for the, you know, the error or they're returning money or, you know, they, you can make corrections to help fix that pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. But there are some penalties. I mean, districts that can't meet requirements. Part of the penalties are that you are no longer eligible to receive federal funds for a certain amount of time. I mean, so there's some real impact if if a district is not following uh, a lot of those guidelines, they can lose the ability to even get that money in the future. That's a pretty serious impact. Is that up to you to decide? Or is that... No, luckily that's all written. written. You don't have to be the bad guy. Uh, I mean, I have to communicate the bad news, I'm sure, and help people through it. But uh, no, a lot of that stuff's pretty prescriptive. If you don't do this, this is what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever any doubt in your mind when you got offered the job that you wouldn't take it? Oh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think I stewed over it for a couple months. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Good thing they waited for you. Yeah. Well, and I think part of that's part of that's just contextual. I think I'm so I'm three years into the village, and um, it's kind of a reality with any sort of change effort. And the village had some work to do. I mean, I, academically, we had some work to do. There's a lot of things we had to clean up. Um, oh, right. I mean, there's just a lot wrapped up in school improvement, um, and that, that journey usually takes five to seven years on average. And so I'm only three years in. And so, uh, there's a, there's a lot of good momentum we've made at this point. Right. And some of that is like helping people to get off the bus, helping people to get into the right seats, right. Helping to, uh, help them to see where their potential is, uh, to serve in certain ways and push them into even leadership roles or into other roles within the school. So making those people moves, getting all the right curriculum in place, helping to get people in to provide training and support, right? So we know best practices and we're doing all the right things to team together. I mean, a lot of that is just getting the, I don't know, the gardening analogy, right? Getting the soil ready right? Yeah. so that we can actually 
provide great instruction and see some great student learning and get some good outcomes. And so we're only three years into that journey. Very hopeful for the future, but I'm leaving kind of like mid stride. Yeah. Uh, right. There's a couple more years left, I think, before we would start to see the fruit of all of the work we've done. And so when I was offered the job at this point, I, I want to see it to the end and I want to be able to experience some of those things at the end of that five to seven years. And, uh, to leave at this point is a loss yeah. for me. And so I remember when I was tapped on the shoulder about the opportunity, um, which I wasn't looking for. I mean, it came to me. I said, hey, you know, you're doing some good things and you have some proven success. We, we want you for this thing. Um, you know, my gut reaction. Oh, like, no, I'm right in the middle of it, right? I'm in the thick of this great work and I want to see it through to the end. Um, it probably took me about a month to get my head wrapped around that this is an opportunity that's not going to come again. Yeah. For one. True. Uh, my impact even though I'm going to have a really good impact here where I'm at, the impact I can have at a statewide level is huge. Right. right? Um, and then there's some parts of that that are, that are appealing, right? Like uh, working with a really high-performing team. Right? Experts at that level is appealing. Some of that is just build some excitement. You want to just go be a part of a really great team yeah. and do some really great work. And, and and that's maybe a little selfish. I don't know, but I think that's just natural. Like I want to go be a part of uh, this great thing and the, the journey that they're going to about to be on for the next 48 years. And so, um, it's only fun to be the big fish in the small pond yeah, for so long. Right. And so I, so I don't know, eventually, ultimately I decided to take it. So, I mean, that one out, but, um, did I have trepidation? Oh, yeah. I mean, I really took me probably about a month and a half before I said, okay, yeah, I think I'm I'm ready to make that change. And so uh, sleepless nights yeah. in between there trying to judge what's important to me and what's, uh, what's really going to win out. I was back and forth forever. I've wanted to do this podcast for a few weeks. I kept asking my mom, like, how's Josh? How's Josh? Is he ready yet? (laughs) Uh, How'd the faculty at the village take it when you told them that you were headed out? Uh, Kind of as you probably expect. I think there were people that were obviously sad. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were a couple that were joyful (laughs) Uh, (laughs) as well. But uh, um, so I think, uh, you know, had a little bit of shock. I mean, my, my intention and what I communicated to people was I was in it for the long haul, right? Yeah. And, and so to hear that making a change at this point in time, I think there were people that were surprised by that. Yeah. And then like with all loss, right? There's sadness and grief and anger for some people, right? But that was the intention. Like you weren't, you weren't lying about wanting to be there. Correct. Right. 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 That w- it wasn't, uh, so it just came as a shock. I think it was just that, you know, we, we expected the intent to be this and then it became this. And so mm-hmm. all the emotion that's tied up into those expectations not being met were real. So I had people that were sad, right? Uh, really, uh, you're such a great group and they're all very gracious. And so I think a lot of people, even if they said you suck right out of the gate, right? It, just reacting to that news said, Hey, we're happy for you we see that that's a great opportunity to go do it. Right. I mean, yeah. so most people very quickly came back around and said, yeah, we're, we're proud of you. Go do okay. it. And that's, that's what you hope. Right? Yeah. Um, and for a lot of people, I think model that for them at some point in time in their career too. Right. When they were trying to make decisions about their lives yeah. right, and moving. And I got to do the same thing to say, yeah, it would suck to lose you. Right. Mm-hmm. But proud of you. I want you to go do bigger, better things. I'm going to support and help you get there. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of people, they already knew uh, that's what I would do for them. Right. So I think oh, some okay. of it's probably reciprocated in that, that way sense. that they go, okay, yeah, you would support me through anything. You know, let's make sure you're, you're there too. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's, that's about right. And like I said, there are definitely some people who are joyful. It's almost a yeah. good thing, though, to have the opposite. You want people to be a little sad and a little upset, right? Yeah. Well, I suppose if every one of them went, oh, finally, I'd be, yeah, I'd yeah. rethought oh, my impact. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, when do you start the new job? Yeah, my contract ends in July. 
Uh, and so, yeah, I'll start in July. Um, I think it was important to me too, when I think about transitions to make sure that I wasn't splitting my energy. Yeah. Giving a hundred percent to the last day. That makes sense. To the village. And that was important. And, um, and state department understands that too. So when they think about my transition on, there's not an expectation for me to come in early, uh, in that transition when I'm ready. And that's great. Um, but they understand I need to make sure I can pass off, you know, the school is in the best possible position Yeah, and, and I'm going to need to stay all the way through July to get that done. So. Are you going to have any say in who's next? Uh, not officially. I mean, really the school board hires the next okay. superintendent principal, but, um, some of the ways I do get to have some influence, I mean, we built a hiring process that prioritized things that are important to us about the people that come and work in the village. And so we've kind of created a process for how we hire all of our other positions to say, first and foremost, we're going to make sure that this person shares these same values that we do. Yeah. And so I, I get to share that with the, the board and the hiring team and say, hey, here's some things that we've been using to make sure we get the right people on the bus. And you can do some of these same things as you're looking for your next leader to make sure they also match the values that are important to us and they understand our leader. These things are really, you know, those core paradigms all match, right? That yeah. You believe what we believe first, and then we can ask all the other things about, are you actually competent as a principal superintendent? So I think I get to influence the process. And in that way, I think uh, we'll be able to protect the village from, you know, getting somebody that's going to walk in that, you know, is going to derail it. Yeah, yeah, the village is losing a couple core pieces, though. A few, yeah, yeah. Are they moving buildings? Uh, yeah, uh, I think that's probably in our future. And I think the it's interesting that we're one of probably five or six charters in this area that are doing the same thing. Uh, charter schools. Um, one of the interesting things that we want to get schools in Idaho is that there's not a lot of money. Yeah, for charters, right? particularly for facilities, uh, and that's true of our regular districts as well. Mm-hmm. But charters can't go to their taxpayers to generate money for facilities; they have to rely on you know benefactors, and there are not a lot of benefactors out there uh, either. And um, so, yeah, so it's really tight uh, in options. So charters often have the challenge of navigating facility issues for a whole host of reasons. We happen to be one of those too. And so, yeah, we're in a building right now that wasn't school twice our size. And when all of your money is driven by your enrollment, right, we're just not generating the revenue to pay for the building we're in. Yeah. And so that's our reality. So yeah, we're, yeah. we're trying to refinance it, but uh, I don't, well, that means we're in a new location in the future. Okay. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people probably even know how charter schools work. So how, how does it differ from public and private schools? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so charters are under the public school umbrella. So the kind of the way that works is we have our state board of education. And under the state board of education is uh, a group called the Idaho Public Charter School Commission. And they're given the ability to authorize schools to open and so they have about 60-some schools in the state of Idaho that they are that they authorize. And their job is to regulate those schools to make sure that they're uh, using all of their money appropriately, that they're getting good outcomes academically, right, that they're following the law, all those things. And so that's, that's their role. So, um, But it's all under the same umbrella that all of our public districts are. So our State Department of Ed is under the State Board of Ed. Okay. And that supports that. So for all of our charters in Idaho, that means we have to meet all of the same standards. We have to, you know, teach all the same uh, Idaho content standards. We have to do all the assessments that have to be done, right? We have to follow the same law and code and administrative rule that all of our public districts do. Uh, all of that is still there. So in a lot of ways, charter schools are still public schools. Yeah. Uh, the thing that makes them different, which is wonderful, um, there are some funding differences, but um, they have their own school board and they get to set their own policy. Um, and many of them, they're small as well, right? They're not giant districts with multiple buildings, even though we have some large charter systems. But 
a lot of what makes them unique is that they get to just focus on a mission and they get to go try something specific. And so we have a lot of variety, things like Harbor Method and Waldorf and you get experiential learning is another one that's out there. You get ones that focus on special education. You get ones that are college preparatory, right? Like, I mean, the list goes on and on. And in our case, you get a leadership focus, right? Teaching the seven habits. And so charters really get that opportunity to say, Hey, we're going to really go focus on this thing and do this thing really well and prove this concept that that's going to be what's important for some of the kids in the state of Idaho. We get to go do that. And that's really what sets them apart. And, uh, it's really interesting that, that they get to be that specific. Yeah. Uh, but they're still public schools, so they still have to meet all the rest of the standards. So it's kind of, uh, there's not a lot of the freedom that I think used to exist when charters first kind of came about. There's a lot of belief that charters kind of could just go be in the wild west and do whatever they want. Yeah. Right. And that's not necessarily the case, but it is kind of the difference. Okay. Yeah. Did the, because it was called the Village Charter School, and then it changed to the Village Leadership Academy. Was that just this last year? Was that how long ago is that already? Oh man, I'm not very good at time. Yeah, two years ago, I okay. want to say. And um, yeah, part of that was um, let's say I I came on right when the pandemic hit <laughs> in 2020. Throw them in the deep end, uh, sink yeah, or swim. Very much so. <laughs> uh, Thrown in the deep end on fire. Yeah. yeah, And as as I was trying to understand our mission and and really get our handle around that, but we also had some, you know, bad press and some financial issues before I came on, right? I was coming on the tail end of kind of cleaning up some mess. So I think part of it too was how do we kind of rebuild ourselves and in that conversation, one of the things was, well, if we're really a leadership school, if we really embody leader in me and, and that's all we are, how do people see that from the very second they see us, right? Yeah, that's the what I was just kind of getting at. they see our name, when they see our website for the first time, when they walk into our school, how is, how is that representing what's really important to us? And one of the things that came out of that, those conversations with our community was our name is one of those. I mean, we... There is something to be kept about the village. There is something about that village feeling, uh, yeah. right, uh, that is really important to our culture. So that wasn't ever going to go away. But Village Charter School didn't say anything about leadership or leader in me or seven habits or anything. And so we underwent a journey to kind of figure out how do we portray that and at the end, kind of put leadership right there forefront in our name. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how that came about. How do you push leadership uh, as teachers? Yeah, so um, probably important to know that when we think of leadership, we're thinking of um, really those seven habits of highly effective people, right? So when we we're not talking about the the charismatic leader, right? Uh, but we're talking about the the ability for somebody to lead themselves first, right, and then to be able to influence others and serve others. And so, um, really, that's important to understand. I think is when we talk about leadership, we're talking about you know, can you be active? Uh, can you begin with the end of mind? But first things first. And that's all, those are all private victories. And right? that's all your own personal character and habit. Yeah. Um, and so the way that we do that is we model it, right? We have to live it. And so what that means is we have to really take those things to heart. We have to apply them in our own lives. We have to share them and communicate them. Uh, once we've had those private victories, then we can begin to turn and look at how we can work with others to do that. And, and in particular, to share leadership, one of the things that is really important about that definition is, are we working to communicate so clearly to other people and their value and their potential in ways that they start to believe it in themselves, right? And yep. they believe that they can do that. And then very tactically, that looks like things like, you know, we're helping to set goals and put up scoreboards and right and have some accountability and checking on our growth and celebrating our successes and learning from our failures. I mean, that's the tactical on the ground level that helps people to actually apply those habits. But, uh, uh, it really comes from that. I mean, we've got to own it and believe it and live it ourselves first. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. When you push kids to be leaders, it's kind of what I've noticed with this, like the, the increase in mental health awareness and struggles with that. 
is that I don't know. Like I'm trying to figure out how to mash this all together. But at, yeah. So at, I went to Timberline, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't actually have to do. You can't get a zero percent, right? Are you familiar with this? Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I think the problem with that is when you don't require anything of kids and they don't have anything to be proud of. So when you're pushing them to be leaders and letting them see themselves succeed, I think that I think that's missing from a lot of schools right now. I think you're right, and I mean you're tipping into the mental health thing, so we can talk about that a little bit. There's some there's an interesting journey that our school is on right now, and and we give a we give a survey every year, ask our students questions in this survey, and then we ask our teachers and our parents, right, everybody, but um, but we ask some questions that end up relating to things that have to do with mental health. And, and one of the ones that's actually low for us right now, falling a category um, in the survey uh, around just student belonging, started to recognize that our teachers were rating some of the same things when they filled out the survey pretty high, saying, like, we believe in kids. We're communicating to them that they belong, right? That we're making sure that they're involved, that we're helping them to see that we're not going to give up on them, right? They're, that they can set goals and achieve them. And if they're struggling, we have other ways to help them to get there. And all these great things, the teachers were saying, we do this all the time. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, the kids were saying, but that's not how I feel. Oh. So we had this discrepancy. So we've been on this journey for the last couple of years of trying to understand why is it that our students, some of our students are struggling with this sense of belonging, right? This sense of, self-confidence, right? And and self-advocacy. And there's some things all wrapped in there where a lot of those things can have mental health impacts, right? Like if I'm feeling alone and isolated, if I feel like people don't have my back, right? If, you know, all of those things can maybe not cause, but contribute, right? To depression and anxiety and worry and low self-concept and a lot of problems um, or exacerbate ones that already exist, right? There's a lot tied into there. One of the things that we've been learning through that journey, though, is there's a lot we can do to help kids to experience success and start to take ownership over their own circle of influence, right? Their own worlds, right? The things that are within their power to change. And a lot of that can be as simple as stuff like just helping them set personal goals, right? To yeah. be able to talk about things like, what is something that is really important to you that you want to achieve in this period of time? And can we set a can we set a goal around that? And can we talk about what you have in your power, second grader, fifth grader, eighth grader, right? That you can do every day to work towards that. And let's write that down and let's work on it. And let's check it together. And I'm gonna hold you accountable to that, right? Yeah. And as you work through that, we're gonna celebrate that, and we're gonna recognize it, and we're gonna point out, look, you do have agency, right? You can make a difference in your own world. You can be successful, right? You are powerful, whatever whatever the case is. And that starts to build successes for kids that build that confidence, right? It yeah. starts to have positive outcomes. And I, I think that's pretty powerful to realize that's those aren't big things. Right. Right? We're not we're not doing assemblies and we're not doing, you know, hiring tons of counselors and we're you know what I mean? Like all these things are really good things, but it's not those big, broad strokes. We're really sitting down and saying, hey, you're important and you have value and what's important to you is worthwhile. Let's talk about how we can get there and work towards that. Yeah. I believe. That's easier to do at a smaller school. Right, though. Like yeah. Timberline had 1,400 kids. <laughs> sure. Right. You, yeah, yeah, it's hard to sit down with 1,400 <laughs> kids and be yep. like, yeah, you can succeed and you have value and you, you bring something unique to it. It's like... Really unique to fourteen other fourteen hundred other kids. Uh, It can be hard to see, and I think that's one of the it's one of the reasons why that change really has to start with the teachers first, right? And and the staff. Um, So even at a school the size of Timberline, its role is the teachers, right? If they all believe those same things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And everybody's living and modeling that. Chances of reaching individual kids increase, right? It's not reliant on just just your teachers trying to serve their 180 kids yeah. that roll through every day, right? Uh, yeah. Because it's things that are important to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. It can be modeled by even a janitor, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that helps in that culture sense. But I, I do agree. I think when you're in a small setting, it's a lot easier to know people. 
yeah. more intimately, right? And make sure you're not missing days with them or, uh, you know, you really have some quality time. And so there, there is a benefit to being small. I do agree with that. For sure. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's possible. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's important to let kids see their failures? Cause, okay. Kind of a, like the personal story would be there's this kid, um, I used to coach him in baseball. Definitely won't use names, but he, we saw him drop, I think it was basketball and then he dropped football and then he dropped baseball and then, uh, he's homeschooled now. So I think, when you don't like have kids like make kids do stuff, even if they're failing, they don't really get to succeed either, which is kind of what I was getting at with the, at the Boise schools where you can't get below 50%. It's like, if you can't see yourself fail, how are you going to know that you can succeed? Yeah. Failure is an interesting thing. Um, some cliches to begin to think about this, but there, there really is some truth to, the fact that you really aren't learning without failure. Yeah. There really is no such thing as a learning journey where you are successful the entire way. Yeah. So that having that really intimate understanding of failure is such an integral part of learning, right? It's a journey of failing and trying again and succeeding and learning and growing and changing and right um, is a really critical part of that. So I agree with you. I think uh, considering, and maybe it's not the policy that's the issue, maybe how we talk and address kids around the policy of no zeros, right? Yeah. I think you're right. I think if if we don't get really comfortable about saying, oh, shoot, you didn't make it. That sucks. Yeah. Right? But, hey, we can go do something else, mm-hmm. right? Like, what, whatever it is, right? I mean, you're practicing two days a week on your swing, right? That what it wasn't working, right? You didn't make the improvements. You're not improving. Let's figure out another thing. What else can we do, right? Yeah. That's not the only way we can improve that. We can find another one. And so it's easy to uh, shy away from it. But I think that's an important part of helping kids to develop grit, right? Mm-hmm. Is to say, oh, you didn't hit your goal, did you? That sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like feel that for a second. And but that's not the end of the story, right? Let's mm-hmm. change some of those things that you're doing to try to improve in that area. Let's go get some help from some experts. Let's try practicing a little bit more. Let's learn something new and implement something new, whatever it is, right? But I think that people need to have that moment of failure. Yeah. Right? In order to learn and grow. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so I think uh there's some truth to that, right? Like if if there's a piece of learning in that class or that course that is really essential and you really don't have to work at it and be held accountable to mastering that concept. I, I think you do allow inadvertently for kids to fall through the cracks. Yeah. Then you're screwed when you get to college. Yep. Absolutely. And, uh, that was a quick learn when I didn't turn in an assignment my first week of college and it was like, Oh, that actually affects my grade a lot more than I oh, thought it did. Boy. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that true? Learn quick. Yeah. (laughs) Amen to that. I have definitely paid for the same course three times, so I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) I think the colleges set you up for it, though, because they make so much money when you fail. (laughs) Yeah, my story there is uh, one of the first ones that I failed. Syllabus, though, you weren't allowed to miss more than, I don't remember the number, so I'll just say it's five days. Oh. So I skipped the last two days of shocked when it came back, failed. Yeah. And I went and pro- I protested. I mean, I went and I was like, there's no way. Like, I had a B plus in this course. I was doing great. I've passed. And they did. He didn't even, I don't want to say he didn't care, but he didn't. I mean, he wasn't going to listen to it. Yeah, like, no nope, sympathy. You knew from the beginning. I'm sorry. Failed. You're going to take it again. And no one reached the syllabus, though. Livid. <laughs> so livid. Yeah. Anyway. That's kind of cheap. I know that's not on the same topic, but. Yeah. Where did you go to college? Uh, so I went to, uh, well, for my undergrad and my master's, I went to Northwest Nazarene University. Okay. I toured at NNU. That was kind of a funny story. So I got there, and at the time, I had two bosses that were twin brothers, and then they had this, it was a window cleaning company. But I texted them, and I was like, Nampa smells so bad. <laughs> and one of them texted back, and he's like, don't worry, the girl's dorm smells fine. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. Uh, yeah. Nampa's rough. 
Impa's right. I mean, you got a sugar beet factory right there. Yeah. That's a piece of that. Yeah. NNU is cool, though. They have yeah. some good sports, good basketball, pretty good baseball. Historically, yep, those have been really good. I think volleyball, they've had some good strings for a while. Yeah. Follow baseball back then, so I don't know how they do historically, but. Do you play sports at all? You know, I did all the way up until about halfway through high school, and then I didn't. Yeah, I kind of took a different path. I was in, my journey kind of went a different route. Most of my childhood, it was soccer. It was a big one. I played soccer for years. Uh, but I did about everything else, almost everything else, for a year. I wrestled. I did basketball. I did baseball. Uh, did like everything at least once. Yeah, I think soccer was one I did for the longest stint. But in college, I did do ultimate frisbee. Oh, cool! So I was on a competitive team for that. That was pretty cool. I'm pretty tough. good at throwing stuff, but that I cannot throw a frisbee to save my life. <laughs> yeah. I'm so bad with uh, the frisbee. <laughs> that was fun though. Although I didn't realize at that level how much running. It's just yeah. nonstop running. Yeah. And I didn't, that didn't register in my brain until I got too deep into it. So did you know you wanted to be a teacher when you were still in high school? Is that where you went, like student council? And No, I think it was more for girls. Oh. Uh, I think that's the truth of it. <laughs> I think that's, that's me being honest about that. I think I followed people that, you know, uh, I thought were pretty smart or whatever. Yeah. Um, but no, I kind of always had like a bend towards, service-oriented kind of thing. And it, it wasn't teaching, I mean, because I kind of had that thing with watching my dad, right? Like, I just didn't want to be a... didn't want to do it. just looked awful. Yeah. Relatable. <laughs> Which is funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, no, it's always been in something like that. Uh, you know, it was always serving on... I guess now they call it cast, right? It was kind of what it is now, I think. But I liked helping, I liked leading, I liked being involved in things. So it was always something like that that drove me to choose to do that. That makes sense. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No. Anything else you want to bring up? <laughs> no one to shout out or anything? You're going to oh, do a little man. sales pitch for kids going to the village? <laughs> oh, I should do a sales pitch for that. Uh, and I can say with 100% uh, really learning and applying the seven habits are things that change lives and and that's part of why I came to the village. Uh, I had learned some of those things in my leadership roles before I even knew the village existed and had applied. And so I think there's a lot to be said for helping kids to uh, develop those habits, to be able to take charge of their lives and be successful no matter where they come from or what they do or what they're trying to get. And I don't typically teach that well. And so I think the opportunity to get that, I think, can change a kid's trajectory and give them confidence that they likely probably wouldn't get if they just trudged through. Yeah. Uh, and we've got a lot of great schools. I don't want to knock any schools, really, but that are out there. But I do think there's something to be said for learning those concepts. And I would highly recommend anybody that part of a leader in any school. Yeah, because those are the skills that shine through at interviews and that kind of thing. Yeah, they're lifelong. I mean, they're not they're not about school. I mean, we make them about school because uh, that's where kids are and that's the work they're doing. But no, they really are timeless. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. I think yeah. we got I think we got the good words spread. Some good information <laughs> spread. <laughs>